I think most of you know I love to sing. And of all times of the year, this is the singing season. A week ago, I was singing with Cantori and Shekinah in our coffee house across the way. Two weeks before that, I was singing deep underground, caroling in the caverns, also with Cantori. It would be a hard thing for me to go even a day without song. Listening to song, singing a song, sometimes alone, but whenever I can with others. So I was thrilled to realize that this Sunday morning I would be preaching from two songs in Luke chapter 1, the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah. Now I'm going to reflect in just a minute on the content, the lyrics of those songs. But before I do, I want us to think about the power of song itself to shape our lives and to shape our world, indeed to transform our lives and our world. Why is song so important to being human? Why is song so persistent and powerful? I'm sure you've all heard stories and some of you have witnessed firsthand the staying power of song in the mind and body of a person who's already lost most of their other physical and cognitive abilities. I've seen a person with advanced dementia who can no longer recognize their spouse or their adult children, who's unable to feed themselves or dress themselves, whose head hangs down most of the time, non-communicative, expressionless, but when someone near them starts singing an old familiar song, their head goes up and they sing along, remembering not only the tune, but the lyrics, sometimes multiple verses. When song gets embodied like that, somewhere deeper than we know, then even in the hardest times, it's strong enough to rise up and give us what we need in the moment. I believe the song of Mary and the song of Zechariah were just those sorts of songs. At a moment when they were overtaken and overwhelmed by the immensity of that moment, by the uncertainty of the future, a song embodied in the depths of their being, rose up and gave them the strength to keep moving toward the promise. You know the story. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. Mary was a young woman from a small village with little life experience. Zechariah was not exactly well-known but he was old and respected with plenty of life experience and responsibilities as a priest in the community. Both were met by an angel with a life-shattering message. Zachariah was told that he and his wife Elizabeth in their older years would have a son who would grow up to be a prophet like Elijah was, which given that Zechariah's people were currently oppressed by and occupied by the Roman Empire, would have been a fearful message to hear. 
Zechariah knew what Elijah's life was like, had been like. He lived with a price on his head, continually hunted down by brutal kings and ridiculed by the public. I suspect Zechariah feared that his son too would become a social pariah and a threat to the powers, and he was likely to pay with his life. And young Mary was told something even more earth-shaking. She also would bear a son before she was even married, and her son would be the Messiah, the one who would retake the throne of David in Jerusalem. That too would have been fearful for any mother to hear. My son, take on the Romans? Will challenge King Herod for the throne in Judea? not to mention the stigma she would bear by becoming pregnant as an unmarried teenager. Now, in this story recorded in Luke, neither Mary nor Zechariah broke out in song right away. The angels' words actually did them in for a while. Zechariah was struck mute, could not speak for all nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary was so overwhelmed that she ran from home and went to take refuge in the home of her Aunt Elizabeth. It was only after baby John the Baptist was born and Zechariah regained his voice that he broke out in song. And it was only after Mary was comforted and rejuvenated by being with Elizabeth that she gave voice to the song that we now call the Magnificat. So where did these songs come from? What were they about? Well, the most simple and straightforward thing to say about them is that they were songs of revolution. They were songs about a communal reversal of fortunes, about overturning the powers, turning the world order around. They were songs that challenged the status quo, that refused to accept the present states of things, and gave praise to God who would turn everything end for end. They were, you might say, songs sung backwards, where the strong are made weak, and the poor have plenty, and the captive are set free, and the rich have empty hands, and those sitting in darkness have the lights turned on. This morning we've heard them read aloud, and we've sung them. Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, for God my Savior has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, brought down the powerful from their thrones, and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And Zacharias sang, God has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. God has raised up a mighty Savior to save us from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. The light of God will shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow. 
There really is no other way to faithfully absorb those songs than by listening to them in their own context. They were sung from the bottom up. In contrast to all the powers that be, the brutal rule of King Herod and the Roman Empire and the religious hierarchy who often collaborated with Rome to keep the peace, Mary and Zechariah were way down the ladder. Now don't make the mistake of thinking that Zechariah was a big shot just because he was a priest. He was one of hundreds playing a bit part in a vast religious structure. His large company of priests were just taking their monthly turn to do the temple duties and temple rituals. And one day, Zechariah drew the short straw, randomly picked to light the incense in the holy place. That's all. No, both Mary and Zechariah identified, I believe, with the downtrodden. They felt the oppression of their people. And in Luke 1, they sang songs of revolution. Now, if you want a modern comparison, think 1965. Think of the crowds singing, We Shall Overcome on the march from Selma to Montgomery. Now, to be sure, the songs of Mary and Zechariah were not merely political protest anthems. They were songs of faith deeply embedded in their collective trust in a saving God who would deliver the downtrodden, just like much of the civil rights movement. Maybe not all, but much of it. I think the burning question for us today is, what song is our world calling for now? In a world where people are rapidly losing hope, where problems seem too deeply rooted to even have a solution, what song is being called for? And is that song somewhere deep within us? And if we haven't been hearing it lately, why not? How can we awaken it so it rises up to strengthen us? How can we learn to sing backwards? How can we be energized and empowered to proclaim our trust in a God who makes things right. Now please hear me, I'm not just trying to wax poetic. I mean this in a practical way. What are the sustaining chords and melody and rhythm to the music of our faith? that will help us live with greater hope and purpose and joy and love in this season and in the year to come. Notice I didn't just ask, what are the words of faith? 
Because our songs are more than lyrics. They are whole-bodied, integrated expressions of an individual in a faith community. There's a reason why the writer of Luke told the story this way. You know, he could have had Mary and Zechariah offer a few words of thoughtful and rational reflection. This reminds me of what Isaiah said about the nature of God and God's love for the poor. Luke could have put only words in the mouth of Mary and of Zechariah. Instead, he had them singing a song. And you realize, I'm sure, that Mary and Zechariah didn't just make up these songs out of thin air. They came from a vast communal resource of historical faith. These words echo what we already find in the Hebrew prophets and in the Psalms. They were already the heart songs of Mary and Zechariah. They had probably sung those words often when gathered with their people in the worship of God, in the worship of Adonai. These songs were embedded in their beings so that when they were really needed, they came out. How are we preparing for hard times? You know, it's, it's hard to sing backwards if we're trying to do it for the first time. It only comes naturally with lots and lots of practice. Of being immersed in the communal resources of faith. If we want to sing hope or cry hope, we need to immerse ourselves in a hope-filled faith community. If we want to sing peace or cry peace, we need to drink in the ways of people of peace. If we want to sing joy or cry joy, we need to strengthen our ties to people who find deep joy in life. If we want to sing love or cry love, we need to devote ourselves to the God who is love and to God's people who embody that love. You know, these songs only seem backward because they're so different from the primary song of the world we live in. A song in the key of domination and control and violence and anxiety. But actually, these songs are not backwards. They are reorienting. They remind us of the true north of God's redeeming love. They are songs in the key of life, to quote Stevie Wonder. And as a pair of songwriters from our congregation put it when describing a music of faith, crushing fears are met with joy, sorrow's curse is torn. Hear the music 
Fling your load down and unbend your tired form. So as a response, let's sing that song together, written by Christopher and Maria Clymer-Kurtz and found in Voices Together, number 276. (laughs) 